So, Michael, if you think about the major headlines about higher ed in recent years, it's been one dominated by decline and change, enrollment decline, change in how we think about the value of the degree, change in the admissions process from test optional to race conscious admissions. Yeah, Jeff, and it's funny, when we first started planning the show, you know, back in 2017, like Future You itself, I think if we're being candid, we wondered if there would be enough to talk about if we just recorded, you know, a couple times a month. Now, frankly, the headlines seem to whiz by and higher ed trends emerge so much more quickly that it certainly makes it difficult for those on campuses to keep up. And as a result, we've sort of stepped back and said, you know, on Future You today, let's dig deeper on a few more issues ranging from community colleges to legacy admissions all these headlines that keep coming up that are front of mind for a lot of folks right now. This episode of Future You is sponsored by Ascendium Education Group, a nonprofit organization committed to helping learners from low-income backgrounds reach their education and career goals. For more information, visit ascendiumphilanthropy.org. This episode is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation working to eliminate race, ethnicity, and income as predictors of student success through innovation, data and information, policy, and institutional transformation. I'm Jeff Salingo. And I'm Michael Horn. So, Michael, it's uh, good to see you in person beyond the Future U campus tour where we're together visiting a campus. We really don't record in the same studio anymore like we did back in the pre-COVID days. So do you want to tell our listeners where we are today? Absolutely. Although I'll reflect in the pre-COVID days, we used to like land in studios together and do three shows and it's very different, but we're not in DC or Boston where we used to do that. Instead, we are coming to you from Sun Valley, Idaho, which I'm going to guess is probably not on anyone's bingo board who's listening right now. Uh, But we were invited here by Gordon Jones, who I first got the chance, Jeff, to meet back in 2016. Uh, A year earlier, Earlier, Gordon had uh, left Harvard, where he had helped start the iLab, which was an experiment at the time at Harvard that's actually been quite successful in incubating startups across uh, Harvard University and bringing students together across all of its various schools that, as you know, don't always talk to each other or communicate. It's really been a hub to bring people together. And then he left the Harvard iLab and he went west to be the founding dean of the College of Innovation and Design at Boise State University. And that's really going west. That is. <laughs> really going west. And now here we are surrounded by the mountains. And he's the president of the College of Western Idaho. And he asked us here today to speak to his trustees and senior leadership about the future of education. You know, Michael, and for those listeners who might be unfamiliar with it, the College of Western Idaho is a, is a community college and a pretty new one at that. It was created in, in 2007 in Boise, which was the last major metro area in the U.S. that lacked a community college. And it was launched with a major support from the Albertson Foundation of supermarket fame. And get this, it, it serves over 30,000 students. And, and the the reason I mention this all, Michael, is because two-year colleges have been really struggling with enrollment. And while the headlines will have us all believe it's largely because of the pandemic, they've actually been losing students for much of the last decade. The number of students at community colleges have fallen 40% since 2010, some 2.6 million students, according to the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. And so, 
I think we're we're here at a really interesting time for the for the sector, um, and in a conversation with the College of Western Idaho here in uh, in Sun Valley, you know, Gordon asked us how community colleges fit into the larger ecosystem of higher ed right now. And, you know, he also told us that when he's with his two-year counterparts from around the country, they seem to get what their four-year counterparts don't get about what institutions need to be relevant right now. And so I'm trying to kind of curious, you know, do you agree with him that community colleges uh, get that, you know, get what four-year colleges don't? And maybe you could share with our listeners how you answered that question when yeah. he asked it. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. You know, look, what I said is I, I get why he says that his counterparts believe they get something, they see something, if you will, that their, you know, four-year counterparts don't. And I think what it, boils down to is on a two-year campus, it's not controversial to say that the big goal of the students here is to get jobs. Like the faculty, the programs, people are really interested in helping people get jobs. They want to get them ready for the labor market, and they all have that sense that this is important for our students. Uh, And then secondly, it's important that it's low cost. Those don't always feel uh, as intuitive, I think, for our our friends on four-year campuses. And, you know, it's quite controversial, right, I think, in, in, in many cases. We know the tuition spikes at four-year colleges. We've talked about those. And we know that many faculty members, even, frankly, if the administrators see it, I think the faculty members, they're, they're a little resistant to this purpose of, you know, getting people into good jobs. That said, Jeff, and this is the sort of caveat to it, I, I think it's not all clear that the track record of community colleges, meaning the outcomes that they get, writ large across the sector, I'm not speaking about any specific college, uh, is that great on this accord? And I think part of the problem is the data isn't very good on this, right? I mean, meaning like it's not very clear. We don't actually ask a lot of questions about the labor market outcomes of community college grads. Instead, we tend to measure in terms of academic outcomes. So, you know, you get the roughly 40% uh, completion rate within six years. Or we talk a lot about academic transfer. We always say, you know, 80% roughly want to transfer to a four-year school that go to community college, only roughly 30% actually do. And I think we sort of shortchange community colleges, to be fair to them. I mean, first, let's say those outcomes are not good. We wish they were better. And it strikes me anyway that a lot of students probably in the middle of a program are like, I just got a better job. I'm going to drop out. We don't count that. We probably should as some sort of success. And we don't really have a way of answering the question, are they all that good at producing labor market outcomes? And to me, Jeff, I think that comes back to sort of the confused missions of community colleges. So while they talk the talk nicely about labor market outcomes, My sense is that they're actually very deeply conflicted places uh, that get questionable outcomes because they're not sure what they're trying to optimize for. Are they trying to optimize for this academic transfer mission that, as Rick Levin, you know, former Yale president, told us, we don't do a good job of? Like, that's not something that they do well, but it's been front and center of how they design programs, gen ed requirements, all the things that they put up front. Um, Is it for jobs? And if it is, you probably would design them pretty differently. So it's not clear they're optimizing on that. And then certainly one third, you know, uh, uh, outcome that they often optimize for is community value, whether that's enrichment, continuing education programs in the community, or like, you know, Montgomery College near you has a great jazz program, for example, things like that, right? And you compare that 
to some of the emerging things in the space, the hybrid college space, the boot camps, apprenticeships, last mile programs, sort of in industry certification programs that of Google or Facebook, right, launches. Those are very like, there's no confusion there. That's about labor market outcomes. They're very clear about prioritizing those, focusing, designing around them. So I think there's a lot of competition and a lot of lack of clarity around what the value proposition is for students that go to community colleges, which sort of contributes to maybe some of these declines, Jeff. Well, and it sounds like we haven't really well defined them, right? And yeah. as you say, they they serve these different segments of students, which you outlined, which I think are really interesting, right? It's that transfer mission. Uh, one is one segment of students. It's those students who kind of dip in and out of community colleges for their labor market needs. And it's just then those community members that just want to take a class here and there. And, and in essence, community colleges are important for all three. But then, as you mentioned, there's these new missions, especially around micro-credentials, which in many ways, they seem a step behind on that. And, and again, it's maybe because they're not well-defined. Yeah. And if we see you know, we see what's happening in, in Pennsylvania, for example, to give you a sense of how things are going in this two-year sector. There was this headline in Inside Higher Ed recently that discussed how leaders of Butler County Community College are considering moving to one of Penn State's regional campuses since both campuses have lost enrollment. And and that's a pretty interesting solution, perhaps. Um, so I'm kind of curious about what you think about co-location with four-year colleges, or does that just mess up the the mission of these community colleges even more. Well, boy, that's a good point, Jeff. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, I will say, you know, Inside Higher Ed quoted me in that article on the topic, but I, I will totally be honest with you. As I was talking to the reporter, I kind of felt like I was channeling you when I was talking. And the reason for that is I'm sort of the M&A college closure guy, right? And, and you're the guy that's like, but there are other strategic options where we can get creative around what collaboration looks like to lower costs and uh, create efficiencies that will create you know, keep these community resources, shall we say, which we both acknowledge have value in the communities. Um, and historically, I've sort of said like, well, what does that actually look like beyond maybe sharing a library or something like that? And, and here we are, maybe we have like a, a really good example uh, of it. Now, I think it's TBD, right? Will it create more to your point, confusion and lack of clarity, or will it really create savings and sort of best of both worlds? Um, but, you know, my sense is at least the college presidents and the associated systems around them are waking up at least to the reality that like the status quo can't continue. Because if you looked at the enrollment drops at both of those schools, like, I mean, it was some people object when we say enrollment cliff, yeah. it was a cliff. Like it, it, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it was a dramatic decline in both. And I, I, you know, I think it's the sort of, at least it, we're seeing the sort of creativity that colleges and universities need to have right now to be able to rethink the use of resources, how they collaborate, how they share things and so forth, and not be necessarily competitive, but more collegial and collaborative and, you know, I, I guess the other question I have in the back of my head is, will it be enough given just how far enrollment has already fallen at these two college campuses? Or is it sort of like, you know, the waters are, are, are you know, we're already sort of below the waterline and, and are we trying to bail it out? And it's it's a little too, you know, a little too little too late. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but I personally think that one of the undercovered pieces of this enrollment puzzle of community college is that so many of these student numbers that are frankly keeping them afloat, if you'll stick with that analogy, yeah. 
is tied to dual enrollment, Jeff. Yeah, Michael, and it goes back to that mission of the high school to college pipeline. And and this is why so many institutions and so many states have really leaned in to dual enrollment through community colleges because it helps those students maybe start and 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 move on from community colleges to four-year colleges. But I'm really shocked in so many ways that in every story about community college enrollment, that this isn't the lead, that high school students make up nearly a fifth of of community college enrollment, and that comes from a study at, at Columbia Teachers College at the Community College Research Center, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes. And at, get this, 31 community colleges, the majority of their enrollment are dual enrollment students. Whoa, whoa put, a, put a pause on that and say that again, because that's a crazy stat. It is. 31 community colleges, high school students make up the majority of enrollment. Wow, that's just that's mind-boggling, Jeff. Yeah, and, and and really, there's more, Michael, because I, you know, there's really no standards for dual enrollment, and indeed, not every state even calls it that, right? When we're talking to different state officials, they'll call it something something else. And in some, you know, in some places, students take the community college courses in their high school. In others, they actually go to the community college campus. You know, this is nothing like advanced placement. Um, you know, say what you want about the college board, but at least there's this curriculum and a national test here community colleges are getting paid by the state to award these credits to high school students. High schools are pushing these courses because they think it really helps the students get a head start on college. And yet they really don't tell the students that at many institutions, these courses might not even count towards credit, right? We, we had that, uh, you know, show on, on credit mobility uh, last, uh, last year with the uh, last season, I should say, uh, with the president at George Mason uh, University. And we know that most of these credits are not going to. Yeah. To, to say clear, they're the exception, not the, like they're, right. they're the ones that do it well. Most places are not. Are not. And, and I'm just really waiting for this to erupt into a, a full blown scandal. And I don't think it has yet because dual enrollment, while it's been around, for a while has only really started to ramp up in recent years. So we're now only starting to hear about the, the problems with it. And there's this other working paper from academics at the, at the Community College Research Center at uh, Teachers College at, at Columbia. And back in February, they found, and again, we'll also link to this one in the show notes, that in most parts of the country, community colleges receive less funding per dual enrollment student than they receive for their regular non-dual enrollment students. And they illustrated how dual enrollment might really Really not be financially sustainable in colleges and states where it's offered at a at a discount. Yeah, and and so I, it calls into so many questions. But I will say I love that you're making uh, this argument, Jeff. I, I actually wrote, as you know, an entire piece on this topic for Forbes, and then in my Substack newsletter, we'll also link to it in the show notes, uh, so I can get more hate mail. But I uh, I headlined it the dual credit risk in high schools, and basically my argument was just what you're saying. So I won't repeat it, but but I think because there's no external objective standard to your very point, it just feels like a way to goose some numbers uh, that sound great, but might have less meaning behind them than people think. And I mean, like, what's not to love in theory about high school students earning college credit in high school? No debt, right? I mean, the, this sounds great. And I'm sure many people are saying, Michael, like, you're the one that wants to blur the lines between educational options and make them more permanent or malleable, if you will. And, and that's all true. But as you know, I actually want to do that based on mastery-based learning, like, you know, mastery of learning, not units of time. And I, I, I think the reality is that a lot of the dual enrollment is a high school teacher offering what's called a college class. And in my mind, it just 
isn't the same thing. I don't think it's, you know, I think it's students are being sold a bill of goods. At least they're not paying for it directly. Now, as you know, Jeff, there are some exceptions like Arizona State where you're an advisor. You you actually, you know, their, their digital prep offering, their high school offering, uh, you get to take an online course and you get the real college course. Like you're taking it with a college faculty member. I think other college students maybe actually are in it. Um, but that's not the norm. And my sense is that to your point in terms of full-blown scandal, I feel like this could go the way of credit recovery in high school, which for those that are not familiar, essentially online credit recovery, which early on I I identified as this way to transform high school, like innovate, non-consumption, students fail a course, don't have a way to make up the credit, give it to them online. We can start to transition uh, and create a more personalized learning experience. And to some degree that's been true, but because there's been no external standard and people have just wanted to goose graduation rates, uh, it's sort of been fraught with bad incentives where I think a lot of students, they, you know, they sit for the course that it lasts two hours and then suddenly magically they have uh, uh, high school credit. Now, you could easily say, well, all of high school is pretty much that way. There's, you know, unless there's an exit exam for a course or something at the state level, there's not an objective standard. And, and, and yes, that's true. It doesn't mean this isn't a ruse as well and and that we won't see blowback to it at some point. And so anyway, all to say I'm with you, Jeff, and I'm worried that like we go down a subpar solution and we don't get the impact or the transformational impact that maybe this solution actually could have if we did it a little bit more thoughtfully around dual enrollment. And, and Michael, I'm reminded that we're here in, in Sun Valley, which is also home to an annual media finance conference where all the big wigs in the world of media and money get together in July every year in this convening, hosted and funded by the firm um, Allen and, uh, and Company, although I'm sure they're meeting in a much more idyllic spot here than in downtown Ketchum, where you can hear in the background probably a a lot of construction, a lot of, of vehicles. They're probably somewhere up in a mountain resort uh, where we're not right now uh, recording this. But, you know, so it helps, I think, that we're here. And as you and our listeners know, I like to make a lot of analogies between what's happening in higher ed and Hollywood and the media in general. Um, but while the government might, you know, step in to stop a media merger, for example, it seems the long arm of the government is really reaching further into higher ed when it comes to what's happening with mergers and in, in et cetera, right? So, you know, there's this piece in Inside Higher Ed recently that found that merger and acquisition reviews in higher ed by the Department of, of Education are taking six to 18 months. And, and the prior standard was 45 to 60 days, so just much longer. And a lot of this is tied into the department, you know, tightening its change in ownership reviews and what it says is meant to protect students and taxpayers. But what many are really saying is also likely to delay mergers and make them more difficult to complete. So again, as we are sitting here in Sun Valley, where a lot of media mergers start uh, and then are completed after people leave, you know, what's your take on, on what the department is doing to perhaps slow down and in many cases, maybe stop a lot of these mergers from happening in, in higher ed. Well, and we should say the slowdown, the practical effect of it, I think, will be just that. It will stop because a lot of these schools won't have the cash balances to sort of go through such a lengthy process. On top of the accreditation review that we also know uh, has stopped some mergers that we've talked about on this show in the past. And we've had guests uh, on, on that topic. I, I will say in terms of the department, we should probably get someone on who, who knows the ins and outs a bit more of the political 
and regulatory machinations here than me, but my, my external sense and reading between the lines is that there are some who think that the department, uh, you know, sort of has, has this view that there's something unsavory about M&A in higher ed. And maybe some of that uh, delay, if you will, or slowdown in the reviews, uh, you know, is blocking the M&A, as you mentioned, of for-profits with not-for-profits and some of those conversions in public institutions, so-called conversions. Uh, but again, for a lot of schools in their last legs, I'm not quite sure what the department is trying to do to hold that up. Uh, but there's definitely a dynamic that's slowing everything right now and chilling it. I, I don't know if you have more intel on this, Jeff, but but it strikes me um, that if there's an ideology behind this, it might not be serving students and institutions all that well. Yeah, it seems like there's two things going on. One was uh, noted in the Inside Higher Ed piece in that there's a staffing. They're just low on staffing at the Department of Ed. And so there's a lot that they can't get to more, more quickly. But I think a lot of it is these conversions. There's a lot of concern about these conversions. And we're here in, in Idaho, where obviously, uh, you know, the University of Phoenix has been trying to uh, sell to. And I think that there's a difference, though, between those conversions of a for-profit to a non-profit and really where I think the majority of this action is going to be over the next five to 10 years. And that is really in two non-profit institutions, either trying to form a much deeper alliance or literally trying to merge and acquire each other, very much like Northeastern did with Mills. I think that's going to be the, the, the norm going forward, not these conversions. And unfortunately, I think the policy at the education department is to really focus on the, on the conversions. Now, before we go to break, Michael, is there anything else from our conversation here in Sun Valley with Gordon and the College of Western Idaho that you, you want to bring up? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, Gordon's made this point to us several times that, you know, a, a clear focus on employment is where they are going as a, as, as a community college. And my reaction to that is there's a real value proposition to be had if as a community college, you can be laser focused and make employment your one and only thing, as opposed to all these other things we've listed uh, on the first half of the show uh, that community colleges have been tasked with historically. And the case study I would hold up is Texas State Technical College, uh, for example, which I believe is the only technical college uh, anywhere where their funding depends on their graduates getting great paying jobs. And I think that, you know, that is not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk. I find it super compelling. And I would love to see more schools, maybe independent of the policymakers, take on some of that risk and move in similar directions. So, Gordon's interested in this, it seems. We're going to have to keep an eye on where it all goes, but let's pause there, tackle some other issues that are burning, Jeff, as we uh, take a quick break and come right back on Future You. This episode of Future You is sponsored by Ascendium Education Group, a nonprofit organization committed to helping learners from low-income backgrounds reach their education and career goals. Ascendium believes that system-level change and a student-centric approach are important for our nation's efforts to boost post-secondary education and workforce training opportunities. That's why their philanthropy aims to remove systemic barriers faced by these learners, specifically first-generation students, incarcerated adults, veterans, students of color, adult learners, and rural community members. For more information, visit ascendiumphilanthropy.org. This episode is being brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Today's college students are more than just students. They are workers, parents and caregivers, and neighbors. 
and colleges and universities need to change to meet their changing needs. Learn more about the Foundation's efforts to transform institutions to be more student-centered at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Oh, welcome back to Future You and Jeff. Maybe uh, let's try to do some rapid fire if, if we're capable of it where we're in person. We're like puppy dogs, excited to be together. Uh, but some rapid fire and some headlines in higher ed. And then I know you have some news to share that I'm, I'm excited for you to share. But let's go first up. It seems like there is not a day that doesn't go by when there is not a story in the media about the future of legacy admissions. Admissions is your thing. What's your take? Is legacy admissions the next to fall after the Supreme Court struck down race-conscious admissions, Jeff? Uh, simple answer, no. Uh, longer answer is I just don't think it will happen unless it's going to be forced by lawmakers at the state level or at the federal level. And if this is at the state level, this is going to create a crazy patchwork of, of state legislation. And, and the simple reason being that the schools who lean into legacy really believe it's part of their traditions and missions. They really believe that this intergenerational love of an institution really builds stronger bonds. Uh, legacies also tend to be full pairs. And many of these institutions, even these institutions that have, you know, tens of billions of dollars in endowment, they still need some tuition revenue uh, to kind of make this this work. And I, I, I recently wrote in my newsletter about how over the last decade that full pay students have really become a rarer commodity in higher ed. The percentage of full-pay students, for example, at the top 150 liberal arts colleges has fallen overall from 22% to 16% since 2012. And, and full-pay students in this case are defined as those who receive no institutional aid, although they might receive other types of, of financial aid. Now, most of that drop-off was at the school's ranked 50 and beyond, you know, but the top 50 institutions, you know, they don't want the same thing to happen to them. So they're going to do everything that they can do to protect the full payers. And that means keeping legacies. Um, now, finally, the question is, you know, how do they justify doing this, right? How do they justify keeping legacies? And I think they're going to say, well, you know, we're going to lean into legacies during early decision, or we're going to lean into legacies at the very end of the admissions process so that, you know, when we're kind of weighing two equally qualified students, the legacy will get the thumb on the scale. And that's largely how they use it anyway. So I think that they're going to say, you know what, we're not keeping a highly qualified uh, students out. So Michael, any any thoughts you have on that? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Jeff, because I think it mirrors an argument. And, and, and just to say it, you know, Johns Hopkins famously dropped legacy admissions. They said they didn't see a decline in donations, as I understand it. Amherst College said it will. And then meanwhile, at rival Williams College, a faculty member, uh, Stephen uh, Gerard, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, we'll, we'll link to it, made the case in the Washington Post that, quote, legacy admissions do not harm diversity, they enhance it. And quote, no legacy is admitted at the expense of a first generation student. They're admitted at the expense of other privileged students uh, who have other excellent options. So that's sort of, I think, your point, Jeff, there. Uh, I was just quickly reminded of a few other thoughts, though, in reading this piece, which is um, one of my thoughts, frankly, from your book, Who Gets In and Why, Jeff, is that standardized tests like the SAT that sort of get bandied as a hot potato in this way aren't often used the way people think that they are. They're, they're more actually used to help low-income students who hail from high schools that admissions officers aren't super familiar with, so they don't understand the rigor uh, of the curriculum and what the grades actually mean. And, you know, how does that relate to legacy admissions? Well, 
I think in, in a few ways, frankly, uh, if it does engender loyalty and it improves fundraising, well, that's going to actually give more dollars to give more discounts theoretically uh, so that these low-income students can can afford it or to have need-blind admissions. Now, I say theoretically because Raj Chetty's study that we talked about last time would say they're maybe not doing such a good job of utilizing that tool, but it's there. The second thought I have is that there's an advantage to having legacy students at a college because they tend to be rich in social capital and sharing that with low income students who maybe don't have that same, those same networks, I think actually really benefits them as they get in the job market. Yeah, And I, I think it's a good point, although many people will point out that the, those people with social networks don't um, necessarily socialize with those who don't have social networks. Fair, fair, fair point. I, I would say the, the, the flip side, though, right, a, a, a school that completely devoid of it uh, is not going to give anyone a chance. So I, and it, we can do more about that, I would say. Um, you know, third, I, I constantly have the Rick Levin point to us that he made that legacy admissions are sort of taking care of themselves um, as there's, you know, frankly, more privileged students applying from a range of places. And I guess my bigger, though, observation is that I I think we just need to start seeing colleges as businesses. And what I mean, maybe even private clubs. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when my friends on the right criticize colleges as elitist, or my friends on the left criticize them as bastions of privilege, I guess I'm not sure why we should be surprised. Like, that's kind of how society has always worked. People have looked for clubs and places of exclusivity, you know, Freemasons, whatever it might be, to sort of congregate and create value in each other's lives. And so, I don't know, my answer to some degree is less in attacking legacy admissions, but similar in some respects to the conclusion of Mark Oppenheimer on his podcast, uh, The Gate Crashers, about the history of Jews in the Ivy League. Perhaps we should, as a society, just stop valuing these schools or these exclusionary clubs, if you will, as much as we do. And if we cared a little bit less about the Harvards of the world, maybe they would have a little less impact uh, on our society as well. Wishful thinking, uh, I know. I know. But, <laughs> we'll never stop caring about but, Harvard. You know, but, you know, I, I can hope, uh, even as I teach there. So anyway, longer the answer than perhaps we wanted. But let's go from admissions to alums next. Um What do you make of this story about a group of USC alums, Jeff, going after the institution because they earned certificates there and were told that they would have alumni status, and then USC pulled the plug from them, so they filed a complaint, and... As you answered, I just would love to know, what is up with USC like constantly being the school that keeps on giving us crazy headlines like this? Well, let's start with USC because, you know, they used to call Ronald Reagan the Teflon president. And I think the same is true of USC. And it, I think it, it, it's really something when you have a brand, you know, think about scandals at Michigan State or Penn State. These brand names are so strong that it's amazing to me that no matter what happens, doesn't matter. Applications go up, fundraising goes up, whatever. Um, second on this, though, on this issue is really it shows, I think, the, the signal of the, of the credential. I recall when I first came to D.C. in the late 1990s, you know, Johns Hopkins was advertising in the Washington, D.C. metro um, at the you know, professional graduate school level. You know, students are really buying, I think, the name and the network, um, whether they're buying a full-fledged degree or whether they're buying the, the certificate. Johns Hopkins knew that, and they were advertising 
Magazine exactly where they would find working adults who really just wanted to buy that Johns Hopkins name, especially in the, you know, in the D.C. metro area. Um, and so, you know, so it kind of surprised me that USC did this, that they, they kind of pulled the rug under basically people who were buying the credential uh, for this reason. And it, it, but it does bring up a good point because, Michael, we talk a lot about these alternative credentials, short-term credentials, micro-credentials, and read at the end of the day really cheaper credentials because that's really what these are. These are cheaper than a full-fledged degree um, than the, you know, the more, that more expensive degree. And, and the question I think that's being asked, and maybe it's being asked of people who have that longer, more expensive credential, should people get access to the same alumni network. And, and Michael, I'm kind of curious about how this works at, at Harvard because, you know, they have the extension. Um, and I don't know how you feel about that as an HBS uh, graduate, but do you think that graduates of all the programs at Harvard should get to use the Harvard name? Well, let me deflect first and tell you a different story, which is you may recall that HBS uh, about a decade ago, I think at this point, launched uh, HBX, which was basically their online program. They had, you know, Clay Christensen teaching disruptive strategy, DSTRAT on HBX, their online program, or sort of these uh, uh, small micro-credentials that like if you're a small business owner and just need some accounting and things like that, you could go online from Harvard Business School and get this uh, package of online uh, uh, courses and have this small micro-degree from HBX. Well, a few years ago, they decided this is mature enough, representative enough of the way HBS does case study and uh, sort of reflective of what we feel is okay as a brand, and they changed the branding to HBS Online. And from what I understand, the students were not at all happy about it because all of a sudden on LinkedIn, all these people started saying, I went to HBS. And as employers, right, like they don't know the difference. And so they're upset because it sort of represents the same, uh, to your point, uh, degree or value. And the students are like, but I got in the door and they, they didn't. Everyone gets into HBS Online. Now, I, I'll confess, I don't lose sleep over this uh, or think much about it. And I, I'm frankly, maybe not surprising to you, I'm delighted that Harvard is providing education to more folks more accessibly. But maybe that's just me given my orientation in this space. Perhaps I'm not representative. And, you know, while we maybe leave it at that, Jeff, because everyone would say, yep, you're not representative <laughs> much, Michael. I, I don't want to just leave it on that note because you actually have some news to share with our audience. Uh, the last episode that was just you and me, uh, I talked about the submission of the draft of my next book about helping people change jobs more successfully. But you have some book news of your own, correct? Yeah, you know, I, I obviously forgot about how difficult it was to write a book because I'm writing another one. Uh, we worked out a deal over the summer with my current publisher, Scribner, which is an imprint of, of Simon & Schuster. And the tentative title is Dream School, the College Admission playbook for the rest of us. Now, we can talk about it a lot more when I'm deeper into the reporting, Michael, but there's this Mike Tyson quote that's pretty famous, that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, it is perhaps probably one of his most cited quotes. Um, and everybody does have a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And the key is planning for what you're going to do after that happens. And in the last four years, more and more teenagers and their parents have been punched in the mouth by the college admissions process, both getting in, paying for college, and even thinking about what majors worth it and what to do after graduation. And they didn't have a plan about what to do next. And in Dream School, this book is really going to be the playbook for families and one that I think they'll increasingly need. Um, this book is really hopefully going to help parents and students understand the landscape they're navigating, help them understand their own kids. Um, and most of all, what to look for in a college and, and really get beyond those top schools 
the Harvards of the world that everybody talks about. You know, if there was one criticism of who gets in and why that I agree with is that it's still focused on the top schools, the most selective schools. And this book will really be the book for the rest of us. And I, I look forward to sharing the journey of it with you and our listeners. And so the timeline is going to be that I'll finish reporting and researching over the next year, start writing in the spring with a deadline, basically a, a year from now with a publication date in uh, late 2025. Well, congrats on signing, despite the uh, of what that's going to do to your life as you report this, but I'm excited about it. It, it. You know, I found in choosing college that far too many students really didn't have a plan B when they didn't get into that dream school. And so, uh, it, and then when they went to a place they weren't excited about, it didn't end well. So I, I think this is, I, I'm really excited about what you're going to learn as you do the reporting. Uh, and let's leave it there. Uh, we will, you know, leave uh, me and our listeners wanting more from what you find as we wrap up our time together in Sun Valley. And we'll talk to you all next time on Future You. Future You.